If you're brand new with us, we've been walking through this year of power here at Bridgeway, going through the book of Acts line by line. And really, the book of Acts just chronicles the rise of the early Christian church. We've met a whole bunch of different characters along the way. Now, we are in part 29 of that series, and you go, man, I feel a little bit late. I'll bring you up to speed when we dive into it. But what we're going to do is I'm going to draw your attention to the fill-in-the-blank on the sheet in front of you or also on the app. If you're watching online, you've got to go ahead and grab the app. I'm going to give that to you in one moment with what I call a short intro. <laughs> now, once again, if a pastor ever uses a time phrase, they usually lie. You just need to understand this. Oh, I'm about to close. No, you're not. You're going to go on for another 15 minutes. So pastors are highly untrustworthy when it comes to timing. However, I've dialed this in. It's the fourth time I'm doing this. It better be clean. Yeah, here we go. So I just have two points I need to make. We'll fill in the blank, and then we'll dive into the rest of it because it does play into everything we're about to study. First concept is this. We need to learn to become more courageous in our faith. We actually need to be able to get outside of our comfort zones because that's where the Holy Spirit tends to hang out, right? Give me an example. So on Friday night, we did a movie night here at Bridgeway. There's about 100 of us, and we watched the movie Jesus Revolution. What a great movie, yeah? And then after the movie, so after two hours of that movie, we did an hour-long panel with myself and one of our elders who was there. So he was talking about the behind the scenes and because he lived that experience and he was in the tent and he saw Lonnie Frisbee and Chuck, Chuck, uh, Chuck Smith. And so he was able to share a lot of stuff you weren't able to see in the movies. We would talk about timing and time frames, which by the way, side note, how many of you have seen it? Raise your hand. How many of you have seen it? Okay, a huge amount of you. All right, do you realize that the actor who plays Lonnie Frisbee, that's the bearded dude that looks like Jesus, do you realize that dude is 44? Lonnie Frisbee in that era was 21. So when you're looking at him, you're like, oh, well, he seems trustworthy. He's an adult. And then you end up realizing Lonnie was only saved about two years prior to that in ministry. He had come from a really rough background. He was only 21 years old when that whole movie begins. So you just need to understand, these are young people involved in that. Chuck Smith was 44 when it started, so he was the adult. But once again, very, very young group. Sure enough, if you remember in the movie, uh, the movie is based around the autobiography of Greg Laurie, who at the beginning of the movie was 16, 17, right? So these are all very young people. He started his church at 19. So once again, very, very young people. All right. Now, as we were going through that, we were on the panel, and I got asked the question, how do you keep vibrant in your faith? Yeah, because I mean, I think we've all experienced the idea that we get saved, we're on fire, and then it kind of, woo, kind of goes low. And you realize in every relationship, there are ebbs and flows. That's not wrong, that's right. But when it comes to being bold for our faith, how do we keep the flame alive? Yeah, it's a fair question. And the only answer I could give everyone that was in my life, how it worked for me, was I said, I can tell you right now, I am just as passionate about the Word of God 
and the miracles of God as I was when I began ministry at 15 years old. I am just as fired up as ever. So how did that happen? Well, I can tell you practically what I have tried to do to maintain that fire, and here it is. I have to consistently push myself out of my comfort zone. That's the reality. Why? Because if you do any relationship, there's an initial newness to the relationship, right? And in that newness is infatuation. You get the cool feelings, the warm fuzzies. You're like, man, this is all new. Oh my gosh, you're even greater than I ever imagined, right? Okay, when we do that, those emotions get stirred up in the newness. Now, of course, later on, it shifts into a different sort of settled love, maturity, stuff like that. But once again, do emotions matter? They do matter. You know, a lot of people come from a Christian tradition. They're like, emotions, can't rely on emotions. Can't be about emotion. All right, cool. Do your marriage that way, and let's see how it works out. Because remember, with God, it's a relationship. So emotions do matter. Experience does matter, right? So how do we keep those warm fuzzies? I only get those when I'm out of my comfort zone. So when it comes to God, I have to be slightly uncomfortable in a little bit of risk. I have to be in a place where I'm growing for my emotions to kick in. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm committed whether I got the emotions or not, but those help me stay on fire. So wherever you can kind of push yourself and lean into a little bit of tension to keep growing, it will keep those emotions flowing. That is courage to do a new thing. But while I say that, there is a caveat. There are some of us, by personality, you're already a little bold, okay? What I mean is you're a bit of a bull in the china shop. What I mean is, dang, you're a little much. And what I'm saying is that everything you say is over the top, and you're always like, I'm just telling the truth. Okay, for you, I have a word of caution. Your word for today is compassion, all right? Because some of us need to work on courage, you need to work on compassion. And, and what I mean by that is please don't ever forget we're working with people, okay? There's a story behind what they do. There are wounds, there are pains, there are hurts, there are real people. You need to listen deeply to them. You need to care for them where they're at, right? Doesn't mean we leave them there, but you gotta care for them where they're at, and you need to get to know them. In the movie, Jesus Revolution, one of my favorite scenes that was most impactful for me, and everybody has a different experience with it, but one that really mattered to me is there's a scene where it's pouring down rain, and Greg is probably, I don't know, 16 years old or whatever, and he is on a bad LSD trip, and he's in a van. I don't know if you guys remember this. He ends up going, I gotta get out of here, and they let him out in kind of a suburban neighborhood, and he just starts running around, tripping out. And as he's in the rain, in his panic, all of a sudden, this Jesus-looking dude comes walking down the sidewalk. Do you remember that? And this, of course, is Lonnie Frisbee. And he comes down, who also plays Jesus in The Chosen, right? So it kind of works out. So he comes walking down the sidewalk, and he sits down in the rain. And Greg's like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And he's like, you're not going to die. And he's like, I'll sit here as long as it takes, man. That one scene resonates in my soul because it's one of the most Jesus things I can imagine. Why? I don't see many people like this. I don't see people that will go and sit in the rain and say, 
dude, I'll be here all night long. I don't care. It's all about you, dude. It's not about me. Because most people I know, we don't have that kind of margin in our lives. You guys are planned to go to the next thing, then you go to the next thing, then you go to the next thing. You certainly couldn't hang out with somebody because you got something else planned, then you got to go somewhere else. You know what I'm talking about? And for him to be able to be so Jesus-like to just go, I'm not going anywhere. Now, Greg got up and ran away from him, but he was willing to sit in the rain. Second thing, I don't know anybody that hears someone screaming on a bad trip running through their neighborhood and they go outside to go find them. That is different, right? Normally, you'd be like, wow, that was weird, and you just watch it through the window. But Lonnie had grown up in such an abusive environment. <clears throat> he, was in a very, he was a very tormented child. He went through so much drug addiction. He went through so much pain that when he heard the calling out of pain, he heard something familiar. And he was like, well, if I was going through that, I wouldn't want to be alone. And he's whoop, just slipped right out of the house and started following this dude. Why? Because his compassion was so strong. And I just, I crumble under that simplicity, that sweetness, that compassion. And I said, that is my Jesus. You guys, the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you are those two words. May we grow in what? Courage and compassion. Courage and compassion. You're, we're about to walk into a passage of Scripture that has that courage and that compassion so beautifully displayed. Now, if you're just joining us, here's where we're at in the story. We've met a number of the characters. The main character we've been tracking with is a man by the name of Paul. We refer to him as the Apostle Paul. He has at least three other travel companions on this second missionary journey where he's going out away from his home to share the gospel with the world. The other companions are the prophet Silas, the protege young man Timothy, and the guy who's writing the book, who is Dr. Luke. Okay, so we got those four guys. They're in a crew together. They, last time we were together, we found out they left the safety of primarily a Jewish culture and an Eastern mindset. In a vision, they were called to travel across the Mediterranean Sea. They arrived on the shores of what we call modern-day Greece, which is Europe. They are now in a Western world. And for the first time, the gospel has officially come to Europe. They were there, and wherever they go, they seek out a synagogue to try to start their home base, but there was no synagogue. Remember, it's not primarily Jewish. There weren't even 10 Jewish men in the town. So they said, we got to find some worshipers of Yahweh, and they found a woman's group down by the river. They ended up connecting with them, and they're like, this is a great group to begin with. They met a very influential, wealthy, and powerful lady by the name of Lydia. They ended up situating at her house, made her house the first church, made that the home base, and they were doing ministry from there. That's where we pick up the story today. All right, turn with me to Acts chapter 16, verse 16. Acts 16, 16, if you need a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. It's page 925, 925. In most of our Bibles, if you just turn to 925, you're going to get there pretty close. Acts chapter 16, verse 16. Here we go. Once again, if you're brand new with us, we're going to read a little bit, and then I'm going to give you some background information, right? Some history stuff that makes it come alive, and then we'll read a little bit more and keep talking about it. All right, here we go. 
It says, as we, Luke is part of the team, as we were going to the place of prayer, we know that's down by the river, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much money by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the demon, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. All right, let's pause. Does this happen to you a lot? <laughs> right? Every Tuesday, yeah. yeah. Right? Your story begins, I was in the mall, and this demon slave girl was just like yelling. Okay? So it seems very odd to us, Right? And it's not exactly totally normal for them either, but, but it's a little bit more understandable in their ministry because weird stuff happened to them quite a bit. But we want to talk a little bit about what was going on here because you're going to start seeing some things open up to you. So first of all, let's talk about the girl. The phrase in Greek means girl. It does not mean child. It does not mean woman. So it's that in-between. So since women became women very early in those cultures... We are now going probably early teen to preteen. That's about where we're at. Says that she is a slave girl. That means she is owned by another person. They're making money off her. That's what we refer to as human trafficking is going on, right? And if you're a slave, it means that whatever the trajectory of your life is currently, whether or not you embraced any piece of it, whether or not you have kind of lived into it, it means the trajectory of your life was not set by you. It was set by other people. It was not your idea. Does that make sense? So she has been driven along. She has become something to make money. She is now out on the streets. Her handlers have put her out there to go make money and then bring it back. That is what we are dealing with. But it says that she had a Pythian spirit. Now, what the heck does that mean? This is where we go into history and geography. Now, many, many years ago, I had the opportunity to go through a study tour of the footsteps of St. Paul, which means we flew into Turkey to Ankara, the capital, down in southern Turkey. We wandered around, saw the seven churches of Revelation, places like Ephesus, and some pretty cool archaeological digs, right? Colossae. And as we came up around, there's a bridge uh, that goes between Asia Minor and Europe. We then went down into Greece. We went to Philippi, Thessalonica, right? All these different biblical cities ended in Athens and flew out. We went to a place called Delphi. Delphi is in the mountains, absolutely beautiful location. It is not too far from a place called Meteora, which has some of the most famous pictures of the world are of this place. If you've ever seen a picture where there's a monastery up on top of like what looks like a rock post way up in the sky, and you don't even know how they get over there, and it's all that is in this region. Super cool looking, all right? Now, Delphi is a very, very famous city in antiquity, and here's why. From basically the 8th century B.C. to the 4th century B.C., it was the hub of mega-religious activity, especially to the Greek mindset. They believed that the god Apollos had appeared there and done some things there, and he was still speaking to the people of earth, through this location, 
Now, um, he ended up, it used to be called Pythia, got changed to Delphi. There was him wrestling with a python. There's all this stuff. None of that really matters right now. What matters is that it was such a key location because in the ancient world, they believed it to be the center of the earth, which is interesting because they thought the world was flat and they said, wherever east meets west, what is the very center? They believed that was the city, Delphi. They called it the navel of the world, which is so funny. You're like, you chose belly button for that, did you? That's a really odd thing to call it. All right, that's cool. And I imagine they did so because as you walk through the town, you would find random lint. You know what I'm talking about? And then, and then periodically you would go, sand? I don't remember going to the beach. You know what I'm talking about? Anyway, it's not important. So they're in Delphi. They would have these oracles, right? Well, Apollo's going to speak here. So what they would do is there was this rock outcropping and it had a kind of a cave inside. They would have this smoke billowing and they would take these ladies as young and then kind of keep them in and they would have them eat leaves that were psychedelic. So they would go into these trances and they would murmur and talk and, and the priests would use them as a money-making operation. They then would, people would come up, they'd give them money and say, I want my fortune told. I want something from the gods. They would then write it down and hand it to the people for cash. Now, this was a huge deal. And you go, well, did the priest write it down? Was it really from these ladies? And there was a lot of demonic stuff that was going on. It was just not a good place. By the time this story occurs, it was not the same heyday where they would consult the oracle whether or not to go to war. That was a big time thing. This was now just a really religious, creepy, demonic place. It was known as Pythia. So what this young lady is being said right here is she is from that camp. She has the spirit of the Python. She is the spirit of that demonic thing. She now is an oracle, tells fortunes for money. They've now gone mobile. Does that make sense? That's what's happening here. All right, it says that she was fortune-telling. Question for you. Is fortune-telling real? Uh, I mean, you gotta think about it. You kinda go, well, the answer is, depends on what you mean, right? What do you mean by, by real? So I would say probably 75, 80% of fortune-telling is the art of manipulation. It's actually a skill that you end up doing people reading, you learn how to manipulate people, and you can read their body language, you know what they're looking for, you're tracking on what they say, you're able to spin it back to them in such a way that you appear rather shockingly magical, that you can tell their future and you can say a bunch of stuff. Now, for example, um, it even goes into, you know, maybe my family's history, if you go way back uh, over on the side of Hungarians, right, which is kind of a piece of my history, you can get into some of the gypsy work, right, where you now have some people that operate, and that's kind of their trade, right? They do this fortune-telling, but it's really manipulation. Now, there is still a portion of people that do fortune-telling by via demons. They're consulting evil sources of power. And now, can demons know information? We don't know course. Are they smarter than us? Yes. We've been alive for how long? 
They've been around the entire time humanity's been around. If humans can manipulate humans, they're really good at it, right? So they know how to give a little bit of truth, a little bit of lie. You can guarantee if demons are involved, it's not a healthy situation. So once again, whether or not it's demonic or it's a con, it's never a good idea on fortune telling, which is why it was condemned in scripture. Does that make sense? So this lady was doing it by demonic influence. So she had a special power to it and people would want to seek her out. All right, it says she starts following a bunch of missionaries. You're like, what the heck? Why do you wanna follow, go do your own thing. But she's following them around, why? Well, I don't know, we speculate, we're just gonna guess. Because it could be that she's like, dude, they're gonna stir up more business for me. They're gonna gather religious people. Well, I pray on religious people. That works out really well for me. So I think if I just kind of hover in the background, I'll just kind of go around, I can get access to their people. Maybe, maybe it was a business move. Or maybe the real her that was not the demon longed to be somewhere where someone was safe and she gravitated towards those Christians. Notice she wasn't saying anything bad, but she was near them. Is that what was happening? Problem is that demons were involved, and demons always seek to disrupt. So you're gonna see that there's some good stuff, but it's mixed with some weird stuff, and it really doesn't seem awesome, okay? So it says, she began to yell out, right? And so, first of all, the odd thing is she's yelling this all the time. You say, but pastor, you yell all the time. <laughs> and you're correct. <laughs> she's screaming out a couple phrases. Look at the phrases again. Are they wrong? No. As a matter of fact, if you were ever gonna write up an advertisement in the newspaper, would this not be it? What does she say? These men are servants of the most high God. Is that correct? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, it's a pretty cool way to say it too. Because what you're saying is, if they're servants, it's his power, not theirs. It's his idea, not theirs. I would love to be able to say, I'm a servant of the most high God. That's pretty amazing, right? And then she said, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Is that not true? Once again, you'd put it on the sign. It's nails. So the content isn't the problem. What's the problem? The motivation and something's off on the delivery, right? She's yelling it, yelling it. The only reason that you would yell when someone else is talking is to disrupt and grab attention your direction, right? So as much as she's saying nice things, she's deviating the attention away from them. Also, she's messing the environment. So for example, Paul and Silas, they're not superstars. They've never been here before. They're trying to kind of be incognito and start human conversations. Meanwhile, someone is shouting at the top of their lungs, they're ministers of the most high God. And you're like, dude, I was just trying to talk to somebody. Stop it. What is going on? You can imagine it's pretty grating on your nerves. The other thing that's weird, she did it days on end. That is weird, huh? Because you're like, you would figure she would give up or do something else. So what's she doing? Well, I think it also begs the question, if Paul's a demon caster, why did he let it go on so long, right? If you can cast a demon, just get rid of it and we'd be fine. But he lets it go. That's so strange. Why would Paul leave a person demon-possessed in his midst? 
Well, because when you go through ministry long enough, here's what you realize. You don't want to cast a demon out of somebody that doesn't want the demon gone. Okay? Why? Because when you cast it out, they invite it back and it makes it all worse. So what Paul was doing is saying, listen, as of this point, she is not seeking freedom. As of this point, she's doing what she's doing. And quite frankly, I got to let God deal with her right now. It's not on my watch. Okay? Now, you're going to find out he's about to change his mind when she finally gets too irritating. <laughs> then he's like, I don't really care anymore. We're getting this done. You are freaking me out. And I love this. It says, and it's one of my favorite lines. It says, and Paul became greatly annoyed. And you know, as Luke was writing this, he's typing away. He's like, <laughs> that was such a funny day. <laughs> you know, he's like, Paul was so mad, right? And he just kind of cleans it up a little bit, right? Paul was greatly annoyed. Okay, casting demons, that's, that's literally what he did, right? It says, and Paul said to the spirit, now you, could, you would imagine if you're looking with normal eyes, you only see this young lady. So wouldn't he say, young lady, wouldn't he say, miss, nope, what does he do? He's like, I'm not talking to you, you're not my problem, the demon's my problem, and he spins around, looks right in the eyes of the demon, and he's like, you! The demon's like, oh, shoot! He saw me. I was totally hiding. Oh, my gosh. He can see me, right? And he's like, you, in the name of Jesus Christ, get out! And the demon's like, ah! And he gets out of there, right? Because in essence, what was he doing? He was not commenting as if, hey, I'm Paul the Apostle. Don't you think I'm a big deal? They don't care. Here's what he was saying in essence. I know Jesus. You know Jesus. Do you want me to get him? They're like, no, sir. No, I do not want you to go get him. I do not like that, right? And he's like, then get out. And they're like, yep, I'm out. And they were gone. Why? Because it is not your power. It's the bodyguard standing behind you that is the big deal, right? It's the power of God that we are operating in. It's the working in our identity as a child of God. It's working in the authority and power of the Holy Spirit. That is what does it. So he is not casting in his name. He is casting in the name of the great king. Does that make sense? Yeah. I just got to tell you, yeah, praise God, right? Amen. All right, so he talks to the demon. You're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know you could talk to a demon. Well, sometimes you need to let them know they got to go. Okay, so we're going to talk about that for a moment. Notice this was a command, not a conversation. This is very important. This is a command, not a conversation. Oh, what's your name, demon? I don't care. Get out, right? Oh, well, why are you in there? What is it? Okay, I don't care. Get out. We're not doing that. Because here's the truth. If you get into conversation with them, they manipulate. They're way smarter than you. So they know how to play you. So we're not talking about it. We're saying go in the name of Jesus. That's how it works. But I gotta ask you a question. Is casting demons really a thing? Like, like modern day? Yeah, it is. As a matter of fact, we have a ministry at Bridgeway that does just that. You're like, I didn't know that. Well, it's not on our commercial. <laughs> this program was brought to you by Exorcism by Bridgeway, right? <laughs> Don't you want to come? <laughs> Bring a friend. <laughs> okay. It's, it's odd, right? But here's the, here's the reality. It exists because of its necessity. There's no flash. There's no flare. There is 
I'm gonna bring the power of Jesus into this process and I want you free. That's it. We're not playing around, right? And the truth of the matter is, sometimes we need help. Oh, well, we're Christians. Demons can't touch us. Hold up. Where'd you hear that? Because here's the deal. They're pretty sticky guys, right? And they come in, they harass, and they cause problems, and they're staying around, and they're messing with your head, and they're doing all that. And sometimes you need someone outside that's an intercessor. You need someone that can go in and just go, we're not doing this anymore. And I will go to warfare for you. I think that's so beautiful, right? Because what is the point? The gospel says that we should be free in all ways. So that's one of the ways. So we operate in that stuff. Sure enough, it came out, the demon came out and left. Which by the way, that light always flickers, don't freak out. <laughs> Everyone's just like, dude, dude, every time you, dude, okay. <laughs> it just goes off every service, just side note. Yeah, but it's always the same area. Hmm. <laughs> All right, let's pick it up in verse 19. You know, you finish verse 18, and you're just like, oh, ministry, yay, Jesus, ministry, so easy. He was like, get out, demon. The demon's like, yes, and everything went great. Well, that's actually not totally true. Let's pick it up. What happened about it? Verse 19, but when our owners saw that their hope of gain of money was gone... They seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs which are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them, gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Oh, dang. That's ministry. I gotta ask you, who the heck's signing up for this? I mean, you gotta imagine Timothy, he's young. He's like, wow, what did I walk into, right? Because he's watching his mentors, Paul and Silas, get beat down. And I need you to understand something. These are not warriors. These are not soldiers. These are not, I trained for this, I kicked doors, I knew this was happening. These are theologians and bookworms. These are quiet guys and they're getting beaten to an inch of their life. This is brutal. And not only that, but then they're thrown into prison and chained to a wall. They have no idea if the corruption of the system is ever going to let them out. This is terrifying stuff, yeah? It's hard. It's hard. Now, let's break it down for a second. What in the world? Why did everybody get so upset? Well, it's kind of similar today. If you want to, so most of the time, the world does not care that Christians exist. And when I say the world, I'm talking about people that don't care that Christians exist, right? We're doing our own little weird thing, and they're like, whatever, you do your thing. Now, if you mess with my world, I'm going to get agitated. But if you really want to tick people off, mess with their money, then they're not playing anymore. So when they cast this demon out, when you cast the demon out, there's no more messages. When there's no more messages, there's no more fortune telling. When there's no more fortune telling, there's no more money. If there's no more money, you're now taking food off my table and you got to go, right? So they get in, they grab them, they seize them, and they start using some pretty inflammatory language. They cited two trigger things. 
The first one they cited is, these guys are Jews. And you're like, whoa, bro. Starting to sound a little anti-Semitic here. It was anti-Semitic. That was the point. They dropped the racial bomb in there. Why would they do that? Because remember, we're not in a primarily Jewish environment. We are now primarily in a Gentile environment. And tensions between the Jewish people and Rome were ramping up. Why? Well, let me give you the story because this really, really matters. Rome wanted to conquer the known world. The problem with that is the known world is super big. So you have to overstretch yourself. You literally have to try to conquer places and then hold them. Well, how in the world are you going to hold them when you're stretched across the planet? You would put leaders in there, and their only job was don't let them pop off. Don't let them rise up. Don't let them insurrect. Don't let them rebel. You got one job, dude. Keep it quiet in your area. That's it. So the second problem becomes the Jewish people are not very cool with being oppressed, and they are not taking it. So they are constantly rebelling, constantly revolting, constantly causing a problem for the Roman Empire because they're like, no, you don't get to dominate me. No, you don't get to own. And, and they just kept having an agitation. So Rome was getting really tense with them. How do we know that? 20 years after this story, it gets so bad Rome sieges Jerusalem and tears down the temple, and it's never been rebuilt to this day. Rome will wreck Jerusalem because they're so angry at the Jewish people. All of that is boiling and getting worse and getting worse across the planet. So yes, they drop a racial bomb, get everybody agitated. These Jews, and then the second thing, are disturbing our city. Why is that important? Remember, the leaders have one job, keep it peaceful. If they're disturbing the city, that means if you don't calm it down, it's gonna go higher up and you're gonna get removed. So they're being very manipulative here, yeah? I lost my money, we're getting these guys out. It says they beat them with rods. Now in our world today, there's a few countries that still do what's called caning. Caning is where you have a very kind of a thin, almost like a bamboo rod, has a little flex to it, but don't make any mistake, it hurts. And they will cane you and hit you with a stick. It's to sting more than anything. Now, if you took maybe three or four of those and tied them together, you have a rod. That's what this is. So this is more like a club. They take their shirt off and they beat them severely, right? Now, it's really, really bad. And then they shoved them into an inner cell. Now, why they didn't put them in gen pop? Why they didn't put them in the general population? I have no idea. Why did they go in the inner prison? Why was it a smaller group of people? I have no idea. But now they're in there and they're chained to the wall with their feet chained together. All right? That's where we're at. So I have a question for you, hearing all that. If Christianity's advancement of the whole religion was on your shoulders, how far would it go? Right? I mean, you just think about it. Because these guys are not trained up to be beaten. How many of us would enter into a situation like this and keep going? Because you find out later, Paul didn't get beaten with rods once. He got beaten with rods three times upon all these other terrible things. <coughs> right? So there's a cost that he's willing to pay and his guys. How did it go? Verse 25. 
About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to him. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. All right. Well, that was weird. Yeah? Let's talk about it for a second. They're in there praying out loud. What are they praying about? I don't know. They're probably like, Lord, I'm in jail. Yeah? It's a good place to start. But they're praying out loud. Should we pray out loud? There's times when I think it's actually we're supposed to. So give me an example. If we're all in a room together and we're like, hey, how about all of us agree with each other in prayer? Well, I can't agree with you unless I know what you're praying about, right? So I got to hear you. You actually have to pray out loud, and then I can be like, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, right? So you got to pray out loud. If you're going to command a demon of somebody else, you, you pray out loud, right? You're like, you need to go. If you're proclaiming healing over somebody, you pray out loud over that person. Now, do you always have to pray out loud? No. The Bible is very clear. The Lord knows your words before they're on your lips, right? He can read your mind just as clear as if it was spoken. So once again, right? I mean, you're like, oh, if only my prayers matter, if I say them out loud, that's going to scare my cats, right? You're just walking around your house praying out loud, right? Cats are probably used to it by now, yeah? Do we pray out loud? We need to pray out loud. Here's what I would suggest to you. Although we don't have to, I would really love the family of Bridgeway to grow in this area. I would, I, I just ask that you would grow in your comfortability to pray out loud. The number one thing that stops us from praying out loud is we say, what if I say something stupid or I don't pray right? Okay, so I'm gonna take all that pressure off you right now. You ready? Here's why. If you really mean your prayer, it's the greatest prayer that's ever been prayed. There is no right words to say. There is no perfect way to do it. Are you truly meaning it? Then I'm gonna tell you no pastor is gonna pray cooler than you. It's all about you doing your best to talk to your God. That's it. So if I said, hey, imagine one day I'm like, all right, you guys, we're all gonna pray for one another. Let's take about five minutes. Let's just, everyone stand up and pray with the three people around you. Some of you right now would be like, like lock up, right? And then others of you are like, okay, cool, I'm comfortable with that. I want everyone comfortable with that. I want us to learn that when you vocalize it, it's okay. It's a beautiful thing. It's not bad. It's not scary. No one's judging you, okay? We can do this, all right? What's interesting is as they're praying out loud, other prisoners are listening. They're also singing hymns to God. That's weird. Why? Because most of us let our circumstance or context determine our praise and worship. What do I mean? Hey, dude, you going to church today? No. Why not? I don't know, dude. I'm just not feeling it. Oh, okay. There's another one. Hey, I saw you in church. I knew you weren't singing. You're like, yeah, dude, I just, I don't feel it inside. Like, man, I've been tore up. I've been dry and stuff like that. Have you ever said that? Of course you have, because you're human. But here's the problem with that. You just let your circumstance dictate whether the all-worthy God should receive praise from you. It's not about you. Well, I don't want to sing right now. No, 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 hold on. You don't want to sing pop songs. You don't want to sing stuff from the radio because you feel like trash. But what we do at church is not singing pop songs. It's singing praise to our God. 
That means it's an act of worship, which means it's an act of sacrifice, which means I don't really care if you're having a rough day or not because it's not about us. And what was interesting about them is they just came off the worst day ever, but they were able to sing out of a full heart. You see, when your heart is full of the Lord, your circumstances don't get to kill your joy. Does that make sense? So they were able to sing hymns out loud. It says the impact was all the prisoners were listening. Now, hold on. I have never been incarcerated. Let's be real clear. And I know a lot of us have, okay? There's a lot of us in this room that have. So I'm about to say something that I don't know for sure, but I have interviewed a lot of my friends who have been on the inside. One of the worst things about being on the inside is flat out boredom. You're like, I don't get to do anything cool. I feel bored out of my mind. When you can't go anywhere and do anything, all these guys are stuck and they're listening to these guys pray. And they're like, listen, I'm not doing anything either. And so I'm going to listen to these guys sing. I think Silas has maybe a future in singing. (laughs) Paul, nope. Nope, that guy's terrible. He can't harmonize. I don't know what's wrong with that guy. Right? Because they're just chilling. They're just listening, right? And they're hearing them pray out loud. And it's having an impact. Their boldness is having an impact, even though it's not direct ministry. They weren't like, hey, dude in other cell, can I tell you the gospel? Because that guy's going to be like, shut your mouth, right? But they were praising. All of a sudden, this great earthquake hits. Why do you have to call it a great earthquake, right? Because in that area of the world, there's a lot of fault lines, and they have a lot of earthquakes. So when you say it's a great one, it's their way of saying it was higher on the Richter scale. You guys know what the Richter scale is, right? You know, they, oh, it was a 2.5 earthquake. No, 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 it was a big one. It was like a 6.7 earthquake. That's the Richter scale. So something hit it so hard, it set a, fi- a foundational movement, right? So it was a, it was a really, really big one. So I, I have a question for you. What was the miracle here? Because there's one of two types of miracles that just occurred. Either it was a miracle of timing, That before the foundation of the world, God set all the fault lines in place after we have a lot of moving of the continents and the the flood and blah, blah, blah. He knew where earthquakes were going to hit. He knew at what time they were going to hit because God is so brilliant. Is it possible that in all of history, he orchestrates, he knows his guys are going to be in there praying at that exact moment. And he was like, angels, synchronize your watches in three two, one, right? And they all just hit it like a little Mission Impossible. They're like, neat. And then all of a sudden, wham, an earthquake hits. And he was like, yeah, got it, right? And it's perfect. Was that the miracle? Or did it go something like this? God's sitting on the throne. He's like, hey, angels, come here for a second. They're like, yes, sir. He's like, you want a rocket? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, I do. And he's like, let's go. And sure enough, angels came in in the night, right? And they're like, all right, guys, once again, sync your watches. You ready to go? You take your side. Ready? And here we go. Wham! And they just hit it, and everything shakes. And the reason why I bring that up is there's a couple unusual things about this earthquake. What? First thing it says that knocks the doors off the hinges. That's not unusual. The ancient doors, you would not have any lock on the top. So what you do is you put the mounting into the wall and then you slide it to hang down on it. If you shake it hard enough, it'll bounce right out of the top and it falls over, okay? That's not all that unusual. The part that's unusual is it seems this only happened in the inner prison. 
The reason why I know that is the, the jailer is about to have a conversation with Paul. If he has to go get all of general population with all of their doors open and they're all running into the streets, he's not having a conversation with Paul and Paul could never say, we're all here. Does that make sense? So something's not right there. Here's the other thing. It says all their bonds were broken. Now, if that's from the wall, that's a normal thing because you get shaken so hard it breaks out of the wall. Now, I'm going to say that's pretty weird in the first place, but if it breaks on your leg, that's a whole different miracle. But it broke on everybody's legs. That's weird. There's something suspicious about what was going on. Why? This is an absolute God setup. Yeah? For what? Take a look at the next verse, verse 27. When the jailer woke up, pause, you're like, you're not a very good jailer. Okay, you need to know, he's the warden, he lives there. His house is on jail territory. He's on the grounds. So he's upstairs, they're downstairs, stuff like that, right? His whole family lives there, his servants live there, everybody lives there, okay? So he would just lock up at night, go to bed, he's still in the jail, yeah? When the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. It's an odd response, until you know Roman rules and guidelines. If you're a cop, if you're a guard, if you're a jailer, and somebody gets out on your watch, you die. That's how you do quality control. Nobody lets anybody go, right? If we're going to come in and we're going to take you out as your authority, we'll kill you. If you want to be a man about it, Deal with it yourself before we get there. That's this guy. All right, I'll take my life. That's what you asked me to do. All right, this is a man that, yes, sir, right? It says he was about to kill himself, but Paul saw him down the hallway, cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. We're all still here. The jailer called for the lights. He rushed in with new torches, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out, and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Then he got baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up into his house and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household. They had believed in God. That was a God set up. Don't do it, we're all here. What was that conversation like before? Door breaks open, everybody's chains come off. They're like, woohoo! Paul's like, hold up! Everybody say where you're at. They're like, why? He's like, I'm a Christian. And they're like, I'm not. I'm running. What the heck are you doing? This is stupid. This is our chance. And he's like, you got to imagine he had some influence. The Holy Spirit was there. Hey, guys, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Listen, I'm telling you right now, we're all awaiting trial. I don't know how it's going to go for you. What I'm telling you is if we move right now, that guy's dead. Who cares about that guy? I do. Why do they care? You don't become a jailer in that area unless you're ex-military, and you cannot work in the penal system. Everybody that knows this, we got a lot of you that work in the penal system here. You cannot work there without getting a little bit hard-edged because you are harassed every day. You are spit at every day. Everybody tries to manipulate you, and you get pretty hard. So I don't know about this jailer, but he probably wasn't gentle. He probably wasn't the nicest guy in the world. He was the guy that locked him up. Maybe he wasn't very nice doing it. But how interesting they care for him. Because you know what would have been another plan? 
chains break, doors fly open, guy's gonna kill himself. Paul says, all right, everybody, hold on a second, hold on a second. Slice, go. That's an easier one. Everybody gets out. You didn't kill the dude. You didn't do anything wrong. You just bailed. But he didn't do that. Why? Because he never forgot who his neighbor was. What do I mean? Many of us compartmentalize that we're allowed to be nice to a bunch of people and mean and nasty to other people and still be a Christian. We don't realize that the people who are against us are still our ministry. You know what I'm talking about? So whatever we're spewing online, whatever we're saying about, you telling me they're not your ministry? Absolutely not. Jesus was clear, who's my neighbor? Everybody. So I'm not sure what we're doing here. I'm telling you, you're losing your opportunity to minister. I do know that, right? And when this guy got saved, it was radical. He immediately turned his life. I mean, this guy bent real fast. What was the first thing he did? Wash their wounds. Like, dude, I am so sorry. You got so beat up today. I'm so sorry. He went right into action. That was a change of his heart. But I do think the, the conversation they had is super highly suspicious. I think there was some retconning going on. In other words, I think that you'll notice Luke was not in prison. He wasn't writing this from first person. He got it. It got cleaned up by the time it came to him. There's no way a jailer who just met them, who didn't have any conversation with them, falls down and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Like, that's not a real thing you would say. Here's what it probably sounded like. Dude, we're all still here. You're okay. Oh my gosh, my life is a mess. I feel so terrible right now. And now in this moment, I feel like I don't even know what I matter anymore. I shouldn't even be doing this job. I, I'm, obviously, I'm a failure. I don't know what's going on. You guys seem to have something I don't have. I don't know what it is. All I know is I desperately need something. And then they would go, well, I hear your words, but what you're really asking is, what must I do to be saved? Okay, the reason why I highlight it this way is please don't just listen to the words that are coming out of the people's mouths around you. Listen to their heart. They're trying to tell you something. Jesus, God damn, blah, blah. Listen, what did they just say? They just said, my life hurts, I don't like it, and I don't know what to do about it. And I don't have any solution. Okay, does that make sense? Then he said, you know, our Jesus is not just for you as the big dog. Our Jesus is for your kids too. And the whole family gathers around. Everybody's getting baptized. It's this great revival and they're all singing praises. And now they're still in jail. They didn't get out of jail yet. They're still in jail, but wow, did God move. Let's pick it up. Verse 35 to close out. And the next morning, the magistrate sent the police saying, let him go. The jailer reported these words to Paul, said, the magistrates have sent you to let you go. Come out now and go in peace. And Paul said, nope. What the heck? We are Roman citizens. They have beaten us publicly. We were uncondemned. They've thrown us into prison. What, they're going to throw us out secretly? Nope. Let them come themselves and come let us out. I want an apology. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And then they took them out and asked them to leave the city. <laughs> like, Would you please get out of here, please? Okay. 
So they went out of the prison, visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers and sisters, they encouraged them and they left. What the heck was that all about? You got to imagine the conversation went something like this. All right, you guys. Man, last night was crazy, right? Am I right? Am I right? Fist bump. Okay. You guys are set free, uh, so you guys can get out of here, man. God bless you. Paul's like, nope. Silas is like, oh, here we go. <laughs> Dude, I'm so tired. Can we just go? No. Okay, can't you just let anything go, right? Like, I, I, I want to go home. And he's like, nope, we're Roman citizens. They tore us up. You know what they did. And you know what? Here's the deal. I don't like it, and I don't think it's right. So I was like, so what? Okay, question. Is Paul just kind of being stubborn? Where he was just like, this is called accountability, bro, right? Because <laughs> he was like, you can't do that. I know who I am, right? Maybe. Paul's human. But usually if Paul digs his heels in, he's probably trying to protect somebody else. So what does that mean? Here's what I think the conversation went. Silas is like, dude, let this go, man. We're alive. We get to go home. Praise God. You know what, Silas? That's true, and we are going to go home. And as a matter of fact, we're leaving the city. But here's the reality. We got a bunch of baby Christians that are going to do the same thing, and they're going to do it to them. And I'm not okay with that. Because here's the deal. They beat us because they didn't like us. They didn't follow any protocol. They didn't do anything else. And if we just go out silently, they're going to do it again because they never got called to the carpet. So here's the deal. I want them to show up publicly. I want them to be publicly humiliated so they never do it to our spiritual kids again. Silas is like, all right. They wait for it, get the apology. Everything is public. All right, now we'll leave. We're out of here. Gosh, right? Crazy ministry. Listen, as we close out, here's what I'm going to do. When you leave this place, you are the church. These are regular people in the Bible. They're you. As you go out today and tomorrow and this week, you're going to walk into divine appointments. They're going to be called your friends, your family, your coworkers, your schoolmates, whatever. And you're going to walk in the power of God. So I'm just going to pray anointing that you would have both courage and compassion. Amen? Let's get out of here. Heavenly Father, we praise you. And we ask, Lord, that you would anoint us afresh by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might be anointed with courage and boldness to be able to share the gospel. And Lord, I just pray that you would touch our heart to give us your eyes and your feeling towards people so that, God, I just pray right now that we might be the compassionate ones, that we would sit in the rain and we would have margin in our lives to be with those that are hurting. And God, that you would move through that. Would you anoint this family, any who can hear my voice, would you anoint us right now to go out in your name, under your banner, according to your power and authority, and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.